The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to this Friday edition of Squawk Box, live from London and the shores of the Thames with Jeff Cutmore and Karen Cho, and the shores of Lake Como with myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. So UBS and Credit Suisse reportedly facing interest payments of up to 10 billion Swiss francs as authorities reveal the costs of the Swiss lender's emergency lifeline. The European House and Brasetti managing partner Valerio de Moli tells me that we may not have seen the end of banking crises just yet. The more worrying factor is the uncertainty within the banking industry. Not that much about Europe. Silicon Valley Bank uh, uh, failure just a couple of weeks ago uh, is probably the first of a series. The Biden government looks to tighten rules on mid-sized banks without going through Congress, leading shares in U.S. regional lenders lower. And as we come to the end of another month, European equities shrug off the biggest banking meltdown in more than two decades, with stocks set to close the quarter on a high as concerns over contagion appear to subside. China's services sector surges with non-manufacturing PMI growing at its fastest pace in more than a decade. But factory activity remains muted, with growth slowing on the month. And Donald Trump is indicted by a Manhattan grand jury after an investigation into hush money paid to a porn star during the 2016 election campaign, the first time a former US president has faced criminal charges. morning, everybody. So things may have calmed down as far as the market's perception of the banking crisis, but that doesn't mean that regulators and governments aren't still very much on point. The Biden administration has released a set of regulatory proposals for mid-sized American lenders in the wake of the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and subsequent turmoil in the sector. In a fact sheet that was published on Thursday, the White House says it wants to raise liquidity requirements and update the stress tests for banks with assets of between $100 and $250 billion. The KBW Regional Banks Index closed 2% lower on that news, while financials were the only sector in the S&P 500 to close in the red in the trading session yesterday. Well, the Swiss government's amalgamation of Credit Suisse and UBS could reportedly end up costing the two banks as much as 10 billion Swiss francs in interest, according to Reuters estimates, which factor in the various interest payments associated with the 100 billion franc liquidity assistance program offered to the two as part of the merger, as well as a separate 100 billion franc lifeline granted to Credit Suisse prior to its collapse.
Well, the latest turmoil to engulf the banking sector set to dominate discussions as lawmakers and business leaders gather on the banks of Italy's Lake Como for the 34th European House Ambrosetti Spring Forum. Uh, Steve is there, of course, uh, catching up on all the commentary for us, Steve. And interesting, you know, we all went to Davos and I don't remember anybody flagging this up in Davos as we listened to the great and good. But here we are after a couple of torrid weeks of rapid decision-making around the banking sector. Um, what, what views are being expressed there about what more to come and whether we are through this current bout safely? Yeah, a lot. And one thing I would, look, it was a great reading um, from our production team as ever, brilliant. But I wouldn't say dominate. And, it, and this is the point. And it, and it does carry on from the conversation that Karen had, I had, you had in Davos, that there is no one crisis dominating. It is exactly the same thematic in terms of the polycrises that we heard coming up in Davos that's coming up here as well. And as you quite rightly say, no one on the radar saw the SVB problem and the other US banks. No one on the radar saw what we were going to um, have in terms of the extraordinary situation, the historic situation over the border from here uh, in Switzerland uh, as well. And so I think that the, the multiple crises, any one of which could rear its head at any stage, creates the most extraordinary smorgasbord of crises, which, again, we've used the phrase before and I'll use it now, creates a whack-a-mole situation for policymakers and for central banks and makes it stunningly difficult to solve one problem without having knock-on effects for the other. And I'll come to that in a bit more detail. The, the great thing about this conference is it's, it's very closed doors in terms of you haven't got like, a huge number of press here as well. You've got an amazing number of policymakers. I actually had a very quick chat to an ex-finance minister uh, here uh, in Italy, Daniel Franco, actually. Um, last night as well. And there's a lot of very important people around who are having serious conversations about what they're worried about because these are the top businessmen and women uh, of Italy as well. So I'll come to that and, and, and a little bit about the fireside I had last night. Again, Chatham House rules. So I'll talk about the subjects rather than the people um, that I was uh, speaking about and to last night. But, but I spoke to Valeria Demoli as well. We always do a, a little um, pre-interview to look, look at the thematics. And, and one thing that's very clear, and I will say this because the amount of times I've come here over the years where it's been about Italy, 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 the epicenter of all the crises, the epicenter because of the banks, because of the sovereign debt, because of their government instability. And whilst it is true that there are ingredients for potential future problems still in Italy, and no one would deny that, and we, we know that what some of those issues are, including you know, one of the largest debt to GDPs on the planet. The fact of the matter is, Italy looks like a beacon of stability relative, and I say that relative, to what we're seeing in France, to the problems that Mr. Scholz is having, that Mr. Sanchez is having, that uh, Rutte is having in Netherlands. So some of the senior politicians in Europe are having some serious issues. Has Italy got its problems? Absolutely, yes. But has Maloney's government at the moment negotiating fairly deftly and way better than many expected? Absolutely. So that's the first point I want to raise, that Italy is not the epicenter of the crises at the moment. And that's, I like saying that because I've been here all my life, been coming here since I was 10 as well. So um, it's actually quite nice to say for once as well. But where are the problems as well? Well, let's listen into a bit of tape from Valera Damoli, who's the managing partner and CEO uh, of the European House Ambrosetti, about where he sees the key issues. Not necessarily a weaknesses, but an uncertainty is the war. Is the war, above all, is creating anxiety and, above all, uncertainties. Who knows what Mr. Putin in Moscow will decide to do. Uh, the incredible narrative about the cohesion of Europe is the coordinated efforts, including actually your country, 
in a, in a, in a splendid way to support the uh, resistance of Ukrainian people and, and population. Uh, so that for sure is a huge uncertainty. And talking about uh, finance and, uh, let's say, the economic environment, the more worrying factor is the uncertainty within the banking industry. Not that much about Europe. Uh, the ECB has done incredibly well. The uh, European Commission also, the Eurozone, is very stable and sound and profitable also. Uh, but what could happen, particularly in the United States, is a mystery. Uh, uh, well, you know very well that the Silicon Valley Bank uh, uh, failure just a couple of weeks ago uh, is probably the first of a series. So what's happening to the entire financial community? That's uh, one uh, doubt. Mm. I, I see many similarities, though, with what we would have discussed 10, 11, 12 years ago in banking then to now. And it's about confidence and it's about the relationship between government paper and the banks as well. And as far as I understand, that old doom loop we spoke about is still alive and well. We saw it um, at Silicon Valley Bank. We've seen concerns about government bond holdings across the banking sector. Why do you think we won't have a similar kind of crisis in Europe this time around? I don't expect that. There is a huge difference. The lessons learned in 2008 on, after September 15, the famous failure of Lehman, uh, the lesson learned at global level, but in Europe in particular, we've been quite slow in getting to an agreement. So that lessons were, were learned. And not only that, the financial rob robustness and stability of the Eurozone banking system is so high incredibly high and, and sound that it's impossible that there will be the similar situation. Uh, and you also have a, a very specific example with what happened with the Credit Suisse, uh, not failure, but let's say uh, problem with the UBS entering into the picture. What they did uh, uh, is incredible, never done before, 100 billion cash available in dollars to secure the markets when they did that overnight when was it sunday so in sunday overnight all the ecb and other central banks made the decision so fast never happened before for dimension and uh, and for intensity of this of this decision so if you look at the risk stability report of the ecb uh, in the all European banking system, uh, there are no worrying factors among the largest systemic banks. Uh, so that's why I am much more relaxed with regard to Europe uh, than back 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Valeria Damoli, the managing partner of the European House, Ambrosetti, speaking to me yesterday evening. So, look, so the, the interesting thing is that there is a feeling uh, amongst the parties here that the, the toolkits available to policymakers and central bankers are able to cope with crisis. 
But the problem is, when you act on one crisis, you have ripple effects on other crises. And this is something that you and I and Karen Jeff have spoken about quite a bit. And that is, if you try to solve a banking crisis, a financial stability issue, there is a chance that you could take your eye off the ball or need to necessarily take your eye off the ball, the price stability problems as well. And this has been alluded to uh, by Jay Powell in his most recent FOMC statement as well, that actually he thinks that the markets could do the job a little bit uh, of the central bank in terms of tightening liquidity. But of course, if you take your eye off the ball on inflation and then concentrate on financial stability of the banks, does that have ramifications? And there are people around the halls here that think, yes, absolutely, that could well be the case. Um, one more thing that came up and I thought was very interesting last night, because actually, as I say, it's always an education for me to be here as well, is that, that he's talking about the debt ceiling. Now, I haven't really paid much attention to the debates between McCarthy uh, and Biden so far this year, the problems that McCarthy's having in the House as well with the Freedom Caucus as well. But it came up yesterday, so I'm telling our audience as well that this is a black swan event that was raised last night, that actually this time could be different because of the mix of the House uh, and indeed the options open to the president to bypass Congress as well. Yes, he has options available, but would they face some form of legal challenge via a Republican stacked Supreme Court, uh, which is a legacy, of course, uh, of the Trump era, where he's got a 6-3 Republicans over Democrats as well. So actions to avoid um, breaking the debt ceiling even further or actually keeping the spending going, because they broke it in January, of course, uh, $31.4 trillion. Could that lead to a problem constitutionally and then for the U.S. economy and the ramifications of a first default for U.S. could be absolutely absolutely enormous for the world economy. It's just a black swan that was mentioned last night, so I'm raising it with you and our viewers now. Uh, and just one quick clarification. Uh, absolutely, I have been coming to this country since I was 10, but you are quite right, Jeff. I was not reporting uh, on economic and finance events when I was up in the Trento uh, with the Cubs in uh, 1980. Back to you. <laughs> what amazing foresight your parents had to take you out to Ambrosetti as a junior cub reporter all those years ago. Steve, we've got a great opportunity here with the three of us to, to, to just kick around the markets for a little bit as well here, because I think, you know, what's been fascinating for me is the cognitive dissonance that we've experienced through the last three months here. The poly crisis, the gnashing of teeth at policymaker level over the, the risks within the banking sector. You flagged up a, a few other potential uh, grey swans there. Um, so in spite of all of this, I think what we need to do is just to remind our audience, given that we are a business and finance channel, that the markets have continued to grind higher through this and have largely ignored a lot of the risks around interest rate hiking and a lot of the risks that we've talked about, about the liquidity being drained from the banking system. So that's your quarter to date. We're up nearly 12% on the Zetra DAX and over 12% on the CAC and even the lowly FTSE, which had a good January, February and gave a lot back, is up nearly two and a quarter of 1% or thereabouts. But it's not only been uh, Europe that's done okay through this period. Um, the NASDAQ, extraordinary. Look at that. We're up nearly 15% on the NASDAQ in spite of the Dow being flat and the S&P achieving 5.5%. If you were a um, fund manager of the old school, you'd probably close up the book and head to uh, Ambrosetti, wouldn't you? I would imagine. And, and count your blessings. You've done your 10 to 15% this year. What do you think this, if anything, uh, tells us about um, the market's perception of the risks 
that are out there at this stage. Are you getting any of that kind of feedback? Is anybody acknowledging yeah. the upside we've seen in equities? Yes, yes, it's already been talked about. Um, absolutely. And we did move on to a couple of the conversations last night uh, to markets. Uh, and something that um, I think is being ignored now, whether it rightly or not, is the narrowing pathway for a soft landing. That phrase came up last night. The narrowing pathway for a soft landing that the, the central banks can engineer a, a beautiful landing despite the turbulence and land dead straight in the middle of the, the runway as well. And actually, despite the fact that the markets seem I would say re relatively cock-a-hoop, really. I mean, despite the valuation concerns we have in the United States with not cheap valuations on the S&P historically, it is unarguable uh, if you look at the long-term charts. If you look at the last couple of years or so, then maybe you can make a good argument for it. But over the long term, the S&P isn't cheap at 20 times as well. European equities, yes, you could argue that they are cheaper, but there's a whole host of uh, structural reasons why European equities are cheaper. They always are. We, us three have discussed it many, many times about pools of liquidity, about uh, growth opportunities as well. So despite the fact that the uh, whole number of crises ha 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 has stayed on the bottom, everything that we were worried about last year is pretty much still there, apart from the fact we're less worried about COVID. And yet, I can assure you, um, the concerns about further pandemics to come is still there in the background for many as well. So all the crisis is still there, and yet the market's grinding ahead regardless, and perhaps is a little bit... Um, I don't know, just a bit too complacent about some of those risks. The other thing that came up last night is, is about some of the bond market valuations on the back of what we've seen in banking and elsewhere. Uh, and actually, from what I've been hearing, uh, some of the players are looking at a safer pathway, looking at safer options rather than uh, some of the more risk on ends of, of the fixed income spectrum, let alone uh, dipping the toe into the equity market. But we have got some absolutely terrific guests, actually, for this show and for Street Signs. And I'll just run you through one or two of the people we're going to be speaking to, including Gene Frieda, who is Executive Vice President and Global Strategist at PIMCO. That's coming up in around about 13 minutes' time. Uh, HSBC's a Senior Economic Advisor, he's called now, Stephen King, who's written a book about inflation. We need to talk about inflation, I think was what it's called as well. Later on in the morning, uh, a man who was at the absolute epicenter. I was in his office right at the height of the crisis in Syntagma Square. That's uh, the ex-Greek uh, finance minister, George Papakonstantinou. Uh, and one guest that I lobbied hard to get, who's here as well, is Sebastian Malaby. Now, I'm really interested in this gentleman who's uh, on the Council of uh, Foreign Relations, but he also wrote, I think, one of the most important books last year uh, called The Power Law. And it's basically the, the, the very, very dense history of venture capital. So if ever there was a time to talk about venture capital, now is that as well. Uh, Later on as well, the former Italian Prime Minister Mario Monti will be joining the channel and Heiner Flasbeck. Now, Heiner Flasbeck was a former minister over in Germany. And why I'm really keen on talking to him is because I think he thinks that inflation targets and what the ECB are doing are wrong. Now, I think that's what we're going to be talking about. And I think that's what he's going to say to me. So if there is, the premise for a lot of the action from central banks is based on sand. So that will be an interesting one near the tail end of street signs. Anyway, for now, I'll hand it back. In fact, I'll even do this for Jeff and Karen. Look, dib, 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 back to you in the studio. How about that? <laughs> dob, dob, dob. It's a great lineup, Steve. Thank you very much. Well done. Still love, love the 10-year-old. Were you, uh, were you um, in the Rosetti. brownies? I was, but I didn't so, go did to Ambrosetti, unfortunately. Did they have the Cubs in Australia? I mean, it's all, it's all gone. 
different now, but it uh, used to be Cubs or Brownies, didn't it? We all, had, all, a, we all had like a team house, and you used to have to sweep underneath the tree, right. which was endless, obviously, with the amount of leaves being shed by a tree. So just All right, no gender stereotyping there, then. <laughs> it wasn't as exciting as going down Brissetti, clearly. Well, no, obviously. <laughs> Very different um, discussions. I think I, I made it to Butlins. Uh, Steve obviously <laughs> lived a charmed life. <laughs> clearly similar experience. Barry Island, um, won't forget you. <laughs> did a flying fox once you know one of those uh, okay I don't know what that is but you know you um, flying fox. Uh, you go soaring over the top of a couple of trees I know, it sounds like a metaphor for, really not, exciting for, stuff. for something else you would say if you wanted to avoid swearing <laughs> true okay. let's push on talk about the Fed officials Susan Collins Neil Kashkari and Thomas Barkin have all indicated the US central bank could stick to its hiking path as inflation remains stubbornly above the 2% target. But Collins and Barkin also added that the recent turmoil in the banking sector is expected to lead to a tighter lending environment that could also help the Fed in easing pricing pressures faster than first estimated. Chinese factory activity growth slowed in March but still topped expectations, while the non-manufacturing figure, which focuses on services and construction, hit a 12-year high. Still to come, March madness as we head to the end of the month and the first quarter of 2023. We will reflect on some of those major market moves. Uh, We will be back in just a moment. And for more from the Ambrosetti Spring Forum, you can check out the Squawkbox podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Fair to call this a rollercoaster month that we've witnessed over March. Investors being roiled by the banking contagion fears that solve risk off across the board. And then quarters of the market repricing around treasuries, namely technology out in front. And you can see that still was the case as we round out the month uh, almost 5% higher on the Nasdaq versus a slim six tenths of a percent on the Dow. So uh, certainly was a bumpy old month. The banks themselves, if we just drill down into the epicenter of uh, some of this volatility, you can see it's been a woeful performance, double-digit falls for some of these big names that were previously darling trades based on NIMS, the expansion of net interest margins thanks to rising interest rates, 20% down for Wells Fargo, the worst hit, 17.5% off Bank of America, 10% down for JP Morgan, still in the realm of falls too, uh, from Morgan Stanley to Citi, down 9 to 10% and 86 coming off the likes of Goldman Sachs. So the recovery not being felt, despite hopes that we're getting through some of the worst of these contagion fears. But of course, what comes next in terms of regulation, still a dominant theme, whether it tightens credit across the economy, particularly for some of those regional banks. Let's take a look at the performance of those names versus what you had on the majors. You can see just the extent of the carnage in First Republic, 88% down. 
PacWest 66, Zion off 40% and 32% off KeyCorp. So clearly still a, a huge reset on valuations for these regional banks. European banks by comparison, this is the monthly performance. Also a very damaging trade for some of these names. The one that investors focused on other than the likes of uh, Credit Suisse and UBS, uh, that's where the forefront of this uh, cleanup in Switzerland was Deutsche Bank. And you can see that stock's still suffering, suffering for the month, down 21%. Falls elsewhere, other global banks in focus from Barclays down 17% to HSBC, which was part of the rescue here of SVB UK down 12%. 23 stripped off SOC Gen, BNP Paribas down heavily, also in France. And you can see uh, Credit Suisse suffering a 71% plunge. UBS uh, slightly more muted as investors took stock of just exactly what it had acquired. European markets over the quarter, this is the performance. So even though it was a very challenging month, you can still see a quarterly gain, uh, particularly around the likes of the FTSE MIB. It's been a risk on, risk off trade, certainly volatile, but it has been the outperformer, uh, just posting gains slightly above what you've seen on the core. Uh, compare that to the Asia markets. A lot of investors have been talking about emerging markets still as a theme and there have been a number of them from the China reopening theme. Investors questioned how much more was left in that trade. The market up you can see close to 6% and more recently the theme around Alibaba and the restructuring of its units whether that could be a signal for another buy in technology names around any pullback and regulation. That's how investors have been treating it into the end of the quarter. That market up 3.3% but you can still see better gains for the Japanese stock market. Let's get to Ben Amons, who is Senior Portfolio Manager and Head of Fixed Income at New Age Wealth. Ben, I just mentioned the equity trade, but uh, we've certainly seen a roller coaster ride too when it comes to treasuries and other fixed income products. Just explain some of the wild trades that you've seen and what it means as we now start out the second quarter. So I think you nicely summarized it, right? You have, on the one hand, the financials really down because of the issues with Silicon Valley Bank. And what this means for the U.S. economy is it's going to really spill over such that lending is curbed and then really starts to affect unemployment, which now the Treasury market seems to be discounting, that there will be an impact on the economy. And as that happens, people seek out defensive plays, such as in technology. Those companies continue to grow now, at least higher than, than where GDP will be. And as a result, with lower rates, money goes that direction. So I think if you look at these trades, it really is shaping up maybe the, the latter half of this year where the, the defense continues to be here because there's not much of a recovery in these bank trades just yet until there's more clarity on the deposits and when there's more clarity on how much more liquidity is needed. And most of all, who is most exposed to commercial real estate, because that's a major focus here at this moment. So I think it sums it up. It continues to be a very defensive play coming into the second quarter. Ben, let me just pick up on that question of who is exposed to commercial real estate. What are the risks? What exactly are investors doing behind the scenes as they're trying to reprice what that exposure looks like? Yeah, it's been actually widely telegraphed here over social media, which banks have how much originated in what area in terms of commercial real estate. And then people try to connect that to what's actually really happening in the economy. People are concerned that the uh, back to office has really materialized such that there is too many vacancies and yet there's too much lending in that area too on anticipation of everybody's coming back to the office. So that's one, I think, a stress point out there. The other one is obviously in the retail and in the leisure uh, 
industry, as much as that leisure has been a, a major contributor to economic growth of the last sort of two years, there's some concerns there of having refinancing risk in, in, in hotels, for example, and with retail as spending does start to slow down further, that's another area. So I think people try to understand which bank has lent where to what sector and then what's the really ultimate risk here. And I think it's still trying to figure this out as we go from here. It's not that so straightforward, but it is a pressure point I think people are wary of and worried about. Ben, so event risk is throwing up all sorts of opportunities um, in your space here. I, th- I think we all understand the warning you're making about the CMBS uh, market and why we should be wary around that. The, um, the bailout for Credit Suisse threw up some interesting opportunities in 81s. What other, um, what other um, possible um, opportunities do you see at the moment for our audience? Where, where is there mispricing going on, do you think, in your space? Well, on the one hand, it is indeed in the regional banking area because there are banks that actually have a very diversified model in terms of lending and deposits and portfolio and, and are not so subject to you know what could potentially be a fallout in the commercial real estate property sector. And those banks are obviously very you know, undervalued. And that, that, that happens right when you're getting distressed broadly that the good names also get dragged down. That would be one area, I think. The other one would be to look at what actually has transpired in technology because there's a lot of speculation that was there that's, I think, taken out of last year. And it has emerged that the better quality companies that are now looking better valued than they were more than a year ago. So I think those two areas are of a focus. Lastly, there is still very much opportunity in the energy space that we see. The energy sector has not performed well because of the worries about the economy and the global economy being slower and energy prices being down. But yet these companies are so flush with, with cash and can pay out so much high dividend and free cash flow. We think that's another opportunity. And, and Ben, where would you go for that? Because there's a lot of high yield um, energy play or you can go investment grade. Where do you get the best return? The high yield area remains the interesting part there because that is indeed a very big part of the high yield index. Uh, it has been on and off a, a really good opportunity to re-enter um, simply because these companies have delivered from you know, a, a crisis that took place more than, uh, than five, six years ago. Uh, and I think that continues to be an opportunity here. In the investment grade space, I would more think that's on the banking side, particularly regional banks that have now investment grade bonds that are over 200 base points to treasuries, that becomes an interesting place. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.